Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 5, The Gamble. Last time we left the Emperor Anastasius with his hand firmly on the tiller of state. The Emperor's reputation for being careful with his money led to some popular financial reforms and the unpopular scaling back of public entertainments. The Emperor's monophysite sympathies were further agitating the citizens of the capital after he replaced their popular patriarch with a more pliable man in Macedonius. As I mentioned last time, Anastasius's reign was marked by a tension in the Byzantine world between a growing peace and prosperity on one hand and continued upheaval on the other. Also by the reputation of the emperor, who was seen both as a wise and conscientious ruler and a tight-fisted killjoy who maybe wasn't as orthodox in his faith as many would like him to be. A year after the announcement of the bulk of his financial reforms, some of that turbulence arrived as the Bulgars returned to the Balkans. In the summer of 499, they crossed the Danube and defeated Aristus, the master of soldiers in Illyricum, who lost 4,000 men trying to stop their advance. Although the Bulgars withdrew after this encounter, the legions were not sufficiently replenished three years later when they returned. The raids of 502 were unopposed, with the army of Illyricum only able to shadow the Bulgars as they pillaged freely. Back in 499, the Green faction rioted in the Hippodrome, and either as a punishment or a preventative measure, Anastasius banned contests with wild beasts. As this ban suited the Emperor's checkbook and his Christian sensibilities, it was viewed with irritation by the Deems. They rioted again the following year, and then during the pagan festival of the Britae in 501, savage fighting took place which killed more than 3,000 people. Some of the histories report that Anastasius' own illegitimate son was killed in the fighting. Again the emperor stepped in and banned the festival, while also outlawing pantomime dancing. This was the pornographic theatre of the ancient world, rather than the white-faced street theatre of modern times. Contemporaries moaned that this ban deprived the cities of the most beautiful dancing. However, with 3,000 dead in the streets, it was hard to argue that the emperor was acting without cause. 
The band seemed to have worked, too, as reports of the seemingly endless factional violence calmed down for a few years. This brings us up to 502 and the return of the Bulgars. Another reason for the anemic response of the legions was that while the empire was being invaded from the west, it was simultaneously facing a revival of hostilities in the east. That's right. It's the return of our old friend, the Sassanid Persians. The border with Persia had been amazingly quiet since the reign of Theodosius II. In 441, he had signed a peace treaty with the Persian king Yazdegerd II, in which both sides agreed not to build new fortifications in their borderlands. The highly optimistic 100-year peace treaty confounded the skeptics and lasted decade after decade, ushering in a new era of peace and cooperation between the two great empires. Well, not really. The reason the Byzantines had wanted a hundred-year peace was because at the same time as they were fighting the Persians, Attila the Hun was kicking the crap out of them in the Balkans. And the reason the Persians didn't try to take advantage of that situation was that they were soon to suffer at the hands of their very own set of Huns. The Hephthalites, or White Huns, were yet another nomadic people from the steppes who moved into the area of modern Afghanistan in the 5th century. We sometimes refer to them as the White Huns because of the report of a historian who we will have much to do with in future podcasts, Procopius of Caesarea. Procopius claims that the Hephthalites were related to the Huns of Attila, but much fairer skinned, hence the white part. Procopius may not have known what he was talking about, but the origin of the White Huns is less important to us than what they did to the Persians. War between the two sides was frequent from the early 5th century, but the Huns grew in confidence, making annual raids by the middle of the century. In 484, the Persians suffered their very own Adrianople moment, when Yazdegerd's son, the now King Peroz, was killed and his army destroyed. In typical nomad fashion, the White Huns weren't interested in conquering Persia, but settled for an annual tribute instead. The defeat triggered internal revolt and reorganization by the Persian nobility. By 502, the king was Kavad, who had only maintained his grip on power with the force of Hun arms. This had come at a price, though, and Kavad looked at renewing hostilities with the Byzantines as a win-win-win situation. It would bring the peoples of his empire together, it would restore some much-needed pride after their humbling defeats, and it would provide the cash to pay off his Hun benefactors. Win-win-win. Kavad needed a pretext for war, though, and the tight-fisted reputation of Anastasius provided it. During the height of Hun aggression in the West, the Byzantines had agreed to pay the Persians an annual subsidy for garrisoning the passes that led through the Caucasus Mountains down into imperial territory. Kavad now demanded that this payment begin again, and Anastasius refused, seeing this as the blatant extortion that it was, but perhaps not anticipating the invasion which would follow. With the excuse he needed in hand, Kavad invaded Armenia, sacked the Byzantine border cities of Martiopolis and Theodosiopolis, and then headed straight for the city of Amida on the Tigris River. The citizens of Amida held out for some time, 
before apparently some of the defenders overindulged in wine and woke up the next morning with both a hangover and Persian troops scaling the walls. It was a bad situation for the Byzantines, but Anastasius responded well. His financial reforms were beginning to take effect, and he was able to recruit fresh troops to bolster his field armies. He split the command between three different generals and ordered them in to reverse the Persian tide. In the campaign season of 503, things didn't go well, with the Byzantines unable to retake Amida and suffering a defeat in battle with Kavad's forces. However, the following year, Kavad overextended himself in trying to take the city of Edessa, which lies about halfway between the border and the Mediterranean. Again, the stubborn citizenry fought together to beat off the besieging army, while the Byzantines were able to raid Persian Armenia and again surrounded Amida. By the following year, the Huns were getting restless, and Kavad sat down for peace talks. Anastasius agreed to an annual payment of 500 pounds of gold, which the frugal emperor understandably saw as the cheaper alternative to continuing warfare. Once the king returned to his side of the border, though, Anastasius and his generals decided to break with the terms of the hundred-year peace and fortify the town of Dara, which sat only a few miles away from the key Persian stronghold of Nisbis. The city was given massive new defensive walls, which encompassed the river Darake, ensuring the city's water supply. If the Persians began making trouble again, the Byzantines would now have a strong forward base to operate from. It's worth noting that during the conflict with Persia, Anastasius exempted the people of Mesopotamia from the land tax to help them recover from their privations. So with his reputation as a wise and kind ruler, now boosted by some military victories, Anastasius was able to finally enjoy the peace which he had brought to his empire. The histories record little of note over the next five or six years, only one incident of serious rioting is recorded, which for the riot-happy citizens of the empire seems like quite an achievement. However, in 507, the greens and blues rioted in both Constantinople and Antioch, each incident needing to be put down by the army. Again, the causes of the unrest are obscure, and don't seem to have been directed against the emperor's policies. By the end of the decade, though, the emperor decided to change that situation. What issue could possibly disturb the peaceful happiness that Anastasius had established? If you guessed Christianity, then you would be right. If you said specifically the Monophysite problem, then you have clearly been paying attention. Anastasius had done his best to keep alive the spirit of Zeno's Henoticon during the first half of his reign. The Henoticon, as you'll recall, was a compromise doctrine which tried to restate the orthodox view of Christ's nature while not using the word nature at all. The emperor was a devout churchman who loved to debate spiritual matters and clearly sympathized with the Monophysite position, despite the vast majority in the capital being staunchly orthodox. As he grew older, the emperor seems to have allowed his public even-handedness to slip, and more and more his Monophysite leanings began to peek through the veil of impartiality. Perhaps we can sympathize with the emperor. He was, after all, approaching his 80th birthday, and the disputes between the two sides had been raging unabated for half a century now. 
It's possible that Anastasius felt that embracing his own views a little more publicly wouldn't cause a serious backlash. If that is what he thought, then he was wrong. By 511, the Patriarch Macedonius suffered the same fate as his predecessor, Euphemius, and was deposed by a local council. Macedonius had been in an unenviable position. He had alienated the orthodox hardcore just by signing up to the Hernoticon, and to appease them, he refused to give the emperor his written profession of orthodoxy back. While keeping up appearances in the capital, he was openly critical of any imperial behavior which seemed, well, unorthodox. However, this came back to bite him as he was now accused of denouncing the emperor and was banished to Pontus. His replacement as patriarch was Timothy, an undisguised monophysite. A leading agitator in the removal of Macedonius was Severus, a monophysite monk from Syria, who by now had the emperor's ear. He had caused scandal in the capital by holding services in which he altered the Trisagion. The Trisagion was a constant refrain in Byzantine liturgy. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, which was chanted by the priests during a service. Severus had added the line, Who was crucified for us? This was the monophysite way of making clear their belief that it was God himself who had died on the cross. This additional phrase had been used in Antioch for many years, but was heresy to the majority of orthodox citizens in the capital. The new patriarch Timothy now amended the liturgy of St. Sophia, the capital's largest church, with this new phrase, and on Sunday, 4th of November, 512, it was read aloud. The majority of the congregation drowned the chant out with their cries of protestation, and soon the scene turned very ugly. Expecting trouble, there were troops on hand under the command of Marinus, the former financial advisor and now Praetorian prefect, and Plato, the city prefect. The congregation were outraged at the heretical chanting, but to see troops there to enforce it was a deeply dangerous sign to many. Scuffles turned to fighting and riot, and soon the floor of the church was covered in the blood of the dead and the wounded. This shocking scene was repeated, though less violently, the next day at the church of St. Theodore, and by Tuesday an orthodox camp had been formed in the Forum of Constantine, with many intent on overthrowing their heretical emperor. Supported by many of the Blues and the Greens, the citizens asked Ariobindus, a former general who was married to a relative of Theodosius II, to be their new emperor. The precental troops were driven off by a shower of stones, and the imperial statues were vandalized again. Fires were started, and rioting took hold the next day. Marinus's house was targeted and burnt down. Ariobindus, however, refused to be proclaimed, and perhaps some of the rioters were already wavering by the Friday when Anastasius appeared in the Hippodrome with a most unusual offer. The crowd were asking for Marinus and Plato to be executed, but Anastasius ignored the request. Instead, he arrived without his diadem and announced that he was prepared to abdicate. He offered them the choice of naming his successor right then and there, or 
he would continue in office, promising that he would never give them reason to turn on him again. It was a most unusual and surprisingly effective gamble. The crowd backed down. The sight of their elderly emperor without his imperial regalia clearly upset many of the rebels, and his offer to peacefully resign seems to have shamed them into dispersing. It's this extraordinary incident which informs much of the analysis of the rioting during Anastasius's reign. Clearly the emperor was still a beloved figure, even by those who saw him as a heretic. I will discuss the cause of the rioting in a future podcast, but for the emperor to offer to resign, and the crowd not to take it, suggests that violence for its own sake had become part of city life, rather than being a symptom of dissatisfaction with the imperial regime. Let's just say it's a good thing Zeno never tried the same trick during his times of crisis. The emperor didn't shelve his monophysite sympathies despite these riots. The next year, another council removed the Patriarch of Antioch, and Severus was appointed in his place. Severus officially accepted the Henoticon, but his Monophysite beliefs were unconcealed, and the appointment made it clear how the Emperor felt about the issue. On the occasion of his enthronement, Severus railed against the Council of Chalcedon, where Monophysite doctrine had been denounced, and was privately determined to make Antioch as full of Monophysite adherents as Egypt was. The citizens of the capital may have come to terms with the behavior of their emperor, but not everyone had. News of the editing of the Trisagion had spread, and by 513, a far more serious challenge to the throne formed around Vitalian, a general who commanded federate troops in Thrace. I'm going to leave old Anastasius poised on the brink of rebellion this week, as I have a lot more to say about his time in power than I can easily fit into one podcast. I also know that I'm late with getting this episode out. I want to stick to a Sunday schedule, but I was on vacation and it didn't end until Sunday itself. So here's the episode a couple of days late. To make it up to you, in only 11 days' time, we will pick up where I've left off and see Anastasius through to the end of his reign. After that, we will begin a more thorough look around the Empire and Constantinople to see what has become of things since the last time the history of Rome took a good look around, way back during the Age of the Antonines. As ever, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of you leaving feedback on Facebook, iTunes, or at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. I read every comment, and your views all go into shaping what I try to cover. If you know anyone who enjoyed the history of Rome, please tell them about the history of Byzantium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 